If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 John chapter 1. We'll be in chapter 1 and chapter 2 this morning. The text is also printed on the insert inside your bulletin, um, so you may use that as well. We're beginning a new series today uh, that we'll go through together over the next several months as I have opportunity to be with you. Um, we're going to be studying this book, the book of First John. You know, when being questioned for ordination, the topic of theology, it's a whole section, it's a whole exam, primarily referring to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there was one chapter in particular that the examiners wanted me to be able to give them from memory, and that chapter was chapter 18. And the title of chapter 18 is, Of Assurance of Grace and of Salvation. These wise men who have been doing ministry and walking with the Lord far longer than I have knew that I would have to go back to this chapter again and again and again for my well-being and for the well-being of those um, that the Lord gives me. And so I want to encourage you this morning, because the most asked question that I have probably received in ministry is, how can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm a child of God? And I believe that 1 John has some answers. In fact, his book is structured around doing two things. One, assuring us of our salvation by giving us correct teaching. But also, remember, he's writing to a church, and the primary thing that this church was facing was incorrect teaching or false teaching. And so I believe that John has in mind teaching us what is right and refuting what is wrong. And this is really going to be the backbone the, the truth of God's Word is going to be the anchor for us um, in the, the storms of life. And so that is why we're going to, to spend some time in this book thinking about these truths together. And we'll see this all throughout, but even here in the beginning, we'll, we'll see this take shape. And so um, before we go much further, let us actually talk, or turn to John and let him tell us what today is going to be about. So this is the word of the Lord from John, beginning in one one, reading through 2.6. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the hearing of it. And let us now go to him and ask for his help in understanding it today. Dear Heavenly Father, you have given us the heavy task of reading your word, hearing your word, and receiving your word. And not only that, you then command us to go forth with your word into the world. We cannot do this alone. We cannot do this on our own. We need you, God. We ask for your help. Through the Spirit, Lord, work in us a soft heart, ears willing to hear, a mind willing to understand, and a mouth willing to proclaim the truths you have given us today. Give us boldness in your word. May it correct where we need correcting. May it encourage where we need encouraging. And may it challenge where we need challenging. Do all of these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. We ask it in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The writer of this book, most commonly thought of as the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, begins this section of this letter with familiar words. That which was from the beginning. This should immediately key us in on at least two passages of Scripture. If we go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read a very similar story. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John will go on in that chapter, as well as the rest of his gospel, to proclaim Christ as the truth of God, the light of the world, the Savior to his people. But we could go back even further to the very first words, couldn't we? We could go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. Going back to the beginning, it begins with God. He's going to rest all of biblical truth on this in all of his accounts. And we need to realize this as kind of ground level. We must begin here. 
we must begin in the beginning. Because one of the things that was going on in the writing of 1 John where there were a lot of false teachings being spread, particularly toward the church or to the church. False teachers had arisen and they were trying to instruct the people in words and ways that were not true to the gospel account. And so John is trying to correct them while at the same time lifting up the people to keep what is true. And so we're going to see that tension this morning. Keep what is true and have nothing to do with what is false. And he will go much further than this. He's, he's, he doesn't simply have just these things in mind. Um, I want to make a case for you that he has four things in mind for us this morning. I want you to see that John speaks the truth for fellowship and joy. I want you to hear you are called as Christians to walk in the light because God is light. I want you to see, and this really is the heart of our message this morning, the root or center of assurance is found in Christ. And then lastly, and we will get to this at the end, I want you to know, how can you know that you are a Christian? I want to give you something that you can hold on to this morning and say, I know that I know. But we need to take each of these in turn and in order. So let us begin with the first four verses of chapter 1. One commentary says of this section, Jesus both proclaims God's message and is that very message himself. John begins by pointing to Christ. We have this beautiful description from John's very account of who Christ is. This is intentional. We don't know exactly what false views were being um, pushed onto this church. But the best way to refute any false view is to overemphasize what is true. In fact, I would argue the best way to find out when, if something is false is to study and study and study the truth. Let me give you a scenario in my own life that uh, has reminded me of this. I was sitting in missions class at RTS, um, I believe it was fourth year. Dr. Elias Medeiros is our missions um, teacher. One of my classmates asked a question, raised his hand. Dr. Medeiros, I, we have just finished Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. What book should I next study to prepare myself for missions? This was a funny question, or at least Dr. Medeiros thought so. He kind of tilted his head for a moment and he told the student, I would go to the book of Acts. You see, there's some things you need to know about Dr. Medeiros. Dr. Medeiros was a missionary in the Amazonian jungle for over a decade. He has several doctorates to his name. He's the Harriet Barber Professor of Missions at RTS. He's one of the few seated professors at RTS Seminary. He is fluent in Portuguese, English, and a lot of native dialects. And he has taught in seminaries in Brazil and America, all over the world, about missions. Which is why it surprised me. Um, I would dare say terrified me when the student raised his hand a second time. No, no, Dr. Medeiros, I wanted another book. What else can I read other than the Bible? 
Dr. Medeiros put his glasses down, closed his notes for that day, went to the front, sat down in a chair, and we got a three-hour lecture on the importance of the Bible for missions. From memory, from experience, Dr. Medeiros ridiculed this student for daring to say that there's a book more important than the Bible that we should study, know, and learn for missions. For three hours, he went on and on and on about the importance of going to the Bible for missions. I still remember any time we walked into his classroom, he would take his stack of books, his commentaries, and all of the, the writings that, from Piper and all those guys, and he would put them on his desk. And then he would take his Bible and he would sit it on top, nearly every class, and he would look to us young pastors-to-be and say, that's the order. Don't forget it. And he made a valid point that has stayed with me to this day. We as Christians, we as missionaries, we must be about the truth. And the best place to go for truth is God's Word. And if you have any time left over, you can peruse some commentaries and writings of other people. But the first place we should go is God's very Word. John turns his attention in similar fashion to give us a detailed description of Christ. Remember, he's refuting false teaching here, but he focuses on Christ. He knows that any study of truth must begin this way. No other place will do. Our assurance begins and is centered on Christ. This is how John describes him. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. Christ is not described as a made-up idea here. He's not a thought. He's not some fiction meant to proclaim something that is not true. One of the false teachings that was going on around this time and very well could have been one of the teachings that uh, was being uh, pushed onto this church was that Christ really wasn't real. At best, he was a spirit who looked real and he walked around like a spirit or floated around like a spirit and just everything he did was just to put on a show for us to give us a model of just do this like this. Or at worst, he really was fictitious and he was kind of added in later uh, to make the account a little more exciting, to add some flavor to what the writers were telling us to do. But what does that do to our study of Christ? What does that do when we're told that Jesus was tired and he went to sleep? He was hungry and he ate. He was sad and he wept. He had a body and was beaten and bruised. He was human. He bled He died. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make up when he says, Here, touch my hand, fill my side. One of the greatest lies that can be told is that the account of Jesus is not true, that there is no truth found within these words. I cannot stress how wrong that is. Jesus is true. He is real. He is alive. This is God's word. Our account today and all of God's word rest upon it. For if if it is not, we are wasting our time. 
Be encouraged and comforted, my friends. We have eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness, live account after live account, historical data both inside and outside the Scripture. We could talk the rest of the morning about the evidence we have, internal and external, that this is God's Word and it is truth. Rest on that, my friends. This is level one. We cannot go any further until we are certain we are here. John tells us why this is so. Why he gives such a strong encouragement about who Christ is. And he says he does so, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Here, John tells us really two things about his reasoning. One, he says he proclaims this truth so that you may have fellowship. You know, the literal translation for fellowship, if you go to the Greek, it means to have in common with. Fellowship means to have in common with. John is writing so his readers will have in common the joy that he has in the Lord. He wants them to know the Lord and to fellowship with other believers because of it. This is why you are very selective in who you invite over. You typically don't invite people into your home that you have nothing in common with. You typically don't go to events with people that you don't have a shared interest, do you? No, we typically group together with people that we have something in common with. We have common knowledge or information or shared interest. We find ourselves doing this often. I truly enjoy our gatherings together here at Redeemer. I know that your love for Christ is apparent. You encourage me in your walk with Christ. Sometimes you challenge me as we talk about what you are facing or how God is seeing you through trials. There's even times when you've corrected me for having a wrong thought, idea, or mindset. And I am so thankful for that. I had a two-hour conversation with a friend this week. One of my roommates in seminary and best friends. And we were just sharing how God has done work and how interesting it is. David is from Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, was an almost Olympic level athlete. Uh, did track in college at Dartmouth University. And he married a farmer's daughter in Yazoo City, Mississippi. Um, and is in a church of Raymond, Mississippi that could fit in the sanctuary. Has a Civil War memorial out back. And is preaching faithfully there each and every week. And then I, a Mississippi boy who has spent nearly every minute of my life within the corners of that state. I'm now in Kansas. The Lord has a sense of humor, doesn't he? But even more than that, the Lord cares for his people. It was a delight to tell him. He would ask, well, how are you being treated at Redeemer? And I could say with, with all sincerity, well, the people at Redeemer love the Lord. And they treat us like they do. And that's beautiful. That truly, truly is beautiful. And may that never become a cliche. Or may that never be something that's said about you but it's not reality. And it's good to be together, isn't it? It's good to fellowship with one another. But I do want to offer at least one word of warning before we move on. 
The temptation is, as we enjoy fellowship together and we enjoy one another, we become inward focused. We become so, I'm going to fellowship with you because we all have everything in common and it works so well, that we forget that there's a lot going on outside of our circle That there's a lot of things happening and our call as a church, our call as Christians is to bring others into this circle. Is to bring others into this truth, into this fellowship. We are called not just to be so inward focused that we forget what is going on in the world. But we are to be strengthened together so that we may go out. Never forget that last part. The Great Commission says go and make disciples. Not sit and let them come to you. The church's primary task is to glorify God by proclaiming this truth. He tells us more about this in verse 4. He says, go and proclaim the truth. Have fellowship with me so that my joy may be complete. Now, this one sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? This is one of those, I was with you with point one, John, but really you kind of snuck that one in, didn't you? But I want you to see, this is where John opens it up. He peels back the layers and shows you his heart. He is writing to a church. He feels responsible for them. He loves these people as a pastor loves his flock. He wants them to know the truth and fellowship so his joy may be complete. And what gives John joy? Where does John's joy come from? His joy is in the gospel. He wants people to know and love the very same Savior that he does. This isn't selfish. This isn't self-centered. This is outward-focused. It brings him joy to see churches proclaiming the truth of the Bible. And with that in mind, he turns to a series of what are these truths that we are to proclaim. Look at verses 5 through 10 as we're told to walk in that light of Christ. John says, this is the message we, from, we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This should not come as a surprise. Uh, if you were with us last summer, we went through a sermon series following the I am statements of John. One of the I am statements says, I am the light of the world. John eight twelve. again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you look at Matthew, Matthew says something similar in his account. You are the light of the world, but the focus is shifted. Now it's on the believer. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, the Father who is in heaven. You could go to the Old Testament. Moses was called by the light of a burning bush. The people were led out of Egypt by the pillars of smoke and fire that gave light and led the way. Moses himself would go up on the mountain and meet with God face to face When he came down, just simply having the reflection of God on him was so much, the people begged him, put a veil on it. We can't stand to see a reflection of who God is. Light is a central concept to the theme of the Bible, and it's a central concept to the theme of God. 
Why is this so? Well, let's think about light in our own day. Light gives us clarity and vision. Most of us, when we think about light, this is what we think of, a flashlight. Um, turning on the lights, a night light. We, as humans, we weren't gifted with an overabundance of night sight. We cannot see very well in the darkness. We must light a fire or turn on a light or use a flashlight or something of some sort to give us light. We need help. Spiritually, we need just as much help, and God is that light. When the world is going further and further and further into darkness, the most powerful thing we have as Christians is the truth. This is our light into the darkness. This is our help in times of need. He brings back up this theme of fellowship as it relates to this light. John goes back to this concept Think about how hard it is to communicate with someone who is in darkness. You can't see their face. You don't know which direction sound is coming from. Uh, You can be very confused and very disoriented. We communicate with our whole being as humans. We're actually pretty fascinating if you think about it. We don't just use words. Watching us on Sundays, myself particularly, you know we use movement and motion. We use facial expressions. We highlight some words and back off on others. We use hand movements. We, we talk with our bodies. We communicate with all of who we are. This is why if you've ever received a text message and you read it and then you had to read it again, are they angry? Are they happy? Are they mad at me? Is this a joke? Is this serious? Have you ever thought about that? It's because that form of communication doesn't give expression. We've tried the little pictures to help, but I don't find them as helpful. Um, I'll throw this one in for free. If that's a problem for you in the form of communication, there's a way to solve it. You can just talk to them. It solves the problem, but I won't get into that. Um, We're essentially trying to communicate in darkness, but If that's the case just with normal communication, how much more is that true when we are sinful? What do we do when we sin? Do we want to stand in the light? Do we want to stand in the truth? Do we want ourselves to be exposed? Here I am. Here's what's going on. No, we tend to revert ourselves back to the darkness. We want people to pass over us. We don't want to be clearly seen or clearly heard. We would rather it just to go away. And so... John reminds us again and again and again here, we must walk in light because God is light. It gets even worse for us, though. The text says those who walk in light have forgiveness. But here's the problem. We're sinners. We're dirty. We don't always walk in the light. We don't always want to be truthful and honest. And so we're in a bind. Walk in light and you have forgiveness. Walk in darkness and not get caught. We could lie about it. I'm fine, God. I'm walking in the light. Everything's great. But think about what light does. It doesn't only illuminate darkness, but it also is pure. It is also good. God says in His Word, He forgives those who ask for it. 
Christ, the light of the world, forgives those who ask for it. And so even when we sin, even when we sneak back to that darkness, even when we repress ourselves and want to be hid from the world, we're told, if you come to me, I will forgive you. And so we are challenged to walk in the light. And I want to take a brief moment here uh, before we go further just to ask, what do you look like to God? What does your image reflect? We can see clearly in the light. In the darkness, it becomes more difficult. Who do you resemble? The father of the light or the father of the darkness? You know, I, I believe I've used this analogy before. Put my father in a room with me. Give you ten minutes. Some of you, it would take about a minute and a half. And you would know without a shadow of doubt, that's Mr. Suber. No question. We stand the same way. We look the same way. We tend to put our hands in the same places when we're having a conversation. We have the same laugh. We think the same way. We interact the same way. I am my father's son. There's no denying it. And so as you ask yourself, what do you look like to God? Our answer ought to be like him. If he's our father. If God is our Father and God is light, then we should look like light. We should reflect truth. We should resemble the one in whom we've been made. You were made in His image to be like Him. And so, why don't we? Why don't we always? And what happens when we don't do it perfectly? I'm walking in the light these days, but then I mess up. Does God not love me anymore? I've given you 14 chances on that sin. This is number 15. You're out. Is God going to go back on his deal? Is God going to change his mind? Is, is God going to erase you from the Lamb's book of life? These are the type of things when we start asking these questions and thinking about light and truth that really get us questioning assurance, isn't it? This is why this is the most commonly asked question. This is why people want an answer. How can I know that I'm saved? Because I sure don't feel like it a lot of the time. And so with that in mind, I want us to see two things in chapter 2 toward that answer. Look at the first two verses. John zooms in now. He's not just focused on the, the world. He's really focused on the church. He calls them little children. And this is a term of endearment. This isn't a, um, you know, a rebuke or a negative here. He says, don't sin, my little children. My goal for you is if you do, that you do not sin. Now, he's not saying that it's possible to not sin at all. Nor is he saying that we can't do it so it doesn't matter. John recognizes that being a child of God means... We should act like God, and God doesn't sin. Therefore, as we walk with Him, we should learn to sin less and less. We've been studying a really good book that uh, has this concept in mind in, uh, on Wednesday nights with the youth. We've been studying Kevin D. Young's Whole in Our Holiness, and I commend this book to you. His kind of main theme comes from 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
God desires for us to be like Him. And John does go on to assure us or give us confidence. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is where our assurance comes from. Our assurance comes from Christ. Verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. Now, I do want to be fair, and at least in a passing moment, um, the whole world here, um, this phrase is used time and time again in God's Word, and there's a lot of debate Well, does Jesus mean his blood's shed for absolutely everybody? No, I don't think that that's the case here. I think that this means all types of people in the world, all people groups of the world. He forgives the sin of his children, which can come from anyone. Remember, he's still primarily talking to Jews here. And for them, their whole lives, they've been told, you are God's people, you and you alone, no one else. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I want to go talk to these Gentiles. And they don't like it. The Jews do not like it. They, what do you mean you're going to talk to the Gentiles? We're God's people. What, what's going on here? And they're having to be reminded, and we're having to be reminded, that Christ is for His people that can come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people group. It's not limited to us here in Johnson County. There's more that could be said on that, but I'll leave you with that for now. But don't miss that first part in getting wrapped up in the second. Don't get so worried about the whole world that you miss. He is the propitiation, or He is the fulfilled, paid sacrifice. He is the atonement. He is the payment for His people. Christ is our advocate Christ is our assurance. In question 25 of the Shorter Catechism, it asks, How does Christ execute the office of a priest? And then it answers, Christ executeth the office of a priest and is once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. There's your propitiation. And in making continual intercession for us. Do you ever stop to think about it? Christ, every single day, is going to the Father on your behalf. Christ is pleading with His Father for you as a child of God. What better, who to better go to the Father than Christ? If anyone could do something perfectly, if anyone could pray a perfect prayer to the Father for the forgiveness of His people, it would be Jesus, right? And what does he go with? What does he, what does he offer the Father in this regard? What does he go to his Father and say, they are sinners. They do walk in darkness. They don't always follow me. They don't always do what I've asked them to do. They're not always obedient. Most of the time they're ugly. They are sinful. He goes with his own shed blood. And says, yep, yeah, I think this will cover it. I think this will work. This, my shed blood will cover the sins of my people. This will declare them righteous. And my friends, we have assurance in that. This happened. This is good news. This isn't a fiction. This is real. This is truth. And we should rest in that. We should delight in that. We should 
be overjoyed with the truth that God has done what he's promised he's going to do. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Which means he's going to come back and get us. And take us back with him. And all of this, every step of the way, he's been leading up to our final point. But make no mistake, we have to go through this in order. You have to know who God is. You have to know why fellowship with one another is important. You have to be centered on Christ for our assurance to then be told, and this is how you can know that you're a Christian. Let us take just a few more moments and look at verses 3 through 6. By this, we know that we have come to know him. Here it is. If we keep his commandments. One of the marks of a true Christian, one of the things that we can put before ourselves is the commandments of God. Do you do the commandments of God? Do you resemble the commandments that he's given us? You can lay them out, stack them up, and compare it versus your life. James says in his writings, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the needs for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, This is not to say that our works add to our faith. This is not to say that God's waiting for us to reach a quota and then he's like, all right, I got you. Assurance achieved. Instead, it's saying that our works are evidence of the faith we have in Christ. If you have faith, then you will have works. One of the commentators says about this concept, it may be hard to know, whether one's spiritual experience is a genuine knowledge of the invisible God, but it is easier to look at one's own conduct and see whether it's in conformity with God's commands. Nevertheless, there is a difficulty here which should not be overlooked. It would be as unreasonable to say that perfect obedience was the necessary sign of true spiritual knowledge as it would be to say that a person must be totally sunk in sin before we can say they are ignorant of God. And so we must ask ourselves a question. What does your thoughts and actions look like compared to God's commands? Do you reflect God or do you reflect the world? In some ways it really is that simple. Maybe you need a list. We like lists. Well, let me give you a a comparison list. Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then one of the greatest words in the Bible account, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desire. Which list do you look like? Now, 
be careful to see that we're not talking about perfect obedience, but generally, generally speaking. And I tell my students all the time, it may not be fair to give you the test either. Sometimes, if we really wanted to get an honest answer, we would give it to your best friend, to your spouse, to your sibling, to those people who are with you every single day. For let's be honest, we grade on a curve, don't we? If we had to look at ourselves, uh, I'm close enough on that one. Go to someone who knows you well. Ask them where do you stack up and prepare for the answer. He warns us in verse 4, if you take this test and lie about it, you don't know God. In fact, he says, if you say that you know God and don't do this, you are a liar. There, your Christianity is simply a title. It's, it's simply something to hang around your neck to say, hey, I'm a Christian. But then your life looks nothing like Christ. It's only valuable in name alone. There's nothing attached to it. Especially assurance. The more you love the Lord and seek to follow His commandments, the more you are able to do so. And this is the beauty of God's Word. He says, obey me. And then as you do so, He helps you and and works in you so that it is easier to do so again and again and again. But the inverse is also true. If you are sinful and you turn from God and God's Word and you, you sin and, and it may be hurt that first time, but then the next time, oh, that's not so bad. And again and again and again, you get to the point that you're comfortable in sin. And that's one of the worst judgments that God can give on a person when sin no longer hurts. Now, I want to remind you, this is only possible through the perfect obedience of Christ. Christ is the only one who can hold these lists up and go 100% this list, 0% that list. He is the only one. He is the only one who obeyed the Father completely, fully, without disobeying, unto death. And He did so on behalf of His children. So when you look at this, if you're, if you're looking at this list and you're, you're really discouraged right now, No, our assurance is in Christ. Our assurance is in what He did. But at the same time, don't let that minimize the fact that He calls you to be this and do this. In 1 Peter, He says, Be holy because I am holy. Not try, not attempt it, not it's okay if you don't really care about it. He says, do it. God would want me to be obedient to His Word, and that is why He's given it to me. And I want you to think of two things as we reflect on this. One, in order to be obedient to God's commandments, you've got to know what they are. You cannot obey that which you do not know. And so we as Christians, I've, I've hopefully overstated this point, we must be children of this book. We must read and study, and pray over, and discuss, and think about God's Word continually, daily. In the Old Testament, they were told, make it as your very eyelids. Put it on your doorpost. Keep this Word. Keep my commandments. 
You can't obey God if you don't know what He's asking you to obey. Secondly, and here I know we need some more encouragement. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let me emphasize this yet again. The he here is Christ. It's not you. Christ walked perfectly. Now we are told to walk in that way. But he has already done it. It has been completed. Christ came and lived a perfect life. He followed the truth to its ultimate conclusion. This is our encouragement. We cannot do this alone. We need Christ. We need one another. We need to be in fellowship with the body. One of my favorite questions, it's not the most frequent, but one of my favorite questions is, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? I love that question because I take a model that Jesus does. I don't answer it. Instead, I go, well, why would you ask a question like that? Why would you not want to be in church with God's people? Why would you not want to be with believers who can encourage you and challenge you and look at your life and call out your sin and lift you up when you're hurting and pray for you when you're sick and care for you when you're not well? Why would you not want to do that? My hope is that this brings joy to your hearts. I hope that you have seen our assurance is based in founded on, supported by, and accomplished through Christ. I hope that you're challenged to walk in the light as Christ is light. And I hope that you can see we can have assurance if we obey God's commands. But the beauty of that is, is if you love God, you will obey. God has built in a fail-safe. My children will obey, therefore they will have assurance. I want to close by reading to you the beginning of chapter 18 of the Confession. I mentioned it earlier. I want you to hear it now. It uses this section of John as a proof text. And it says the following. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hope and carnal presumption of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which their hope shall perish... Yet, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope will never make them ashamed. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our only hope is in You. Our truth comes from You and comes from Your Word. That which You have done, that which You have promised, that which all of Scripture yells out, Christ came. He did what needed to be done. He fulfilled the task. I pray for us as Christians, for many times we find ourselves struggling we find ourselves doubting. We find ourselves in a, in a position of wondering, does God love me? And with that in mind, I would pray that we would come to 1 John and we would look at the truth that it gives us. God is the light. And He calls us to walk in light. And He says, if we ask for forgiveness, you will give it gladly. And as your child, as your children, as we walk in that light, we will learn to obey more and more.
And as we do that, that will lead to keeping the commandments. And as we do those, even imperfectly, even in a little way, even if it isn't to the best of our ability, we do so hoping that you will receive them. You say, yes, I do receive them. The blood of Christ has covered your sin. You are walking with me. And we can rest in that. Help us, dear Lord. May this be a salve to our source. May this be a comfort to our affliction. And if there are those who are here this morning and don't walk in your light and don't know your good news, may this hang over their head like a weight. May this loom over them. May the weight of your judgment and all of the negatives to what this says bear over them. Not that they may be destroyed, but that they may come into the light. That they may have fellowship with us. That they may rejoice in your word and do so for your glory in your namesake. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. For who other name, whose other name would we go to than his? Amen.